0: everybody how's it going i'm good thank you for asking i'm running for that whole world vision thing though so yeah yeah it's long i am up to three miles yeah only 10.1 more to add yeah so anyway pray for me (laughs) And uh, some of you already jumped on my support team, so thanks for that. I appreciate that. That's awesome. Hey, let's pray together, and then let's look into Scripture, okay? Father in heaven, you're good to us, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all the stuff you do to pour out your blessing into our lives. I'm grateful for my friends being here today. I'm grateful, Lord, that you uh, have given us your son, Jesus, and you draw us to him. You call us to him. You redeem us through him. Thank you for all those things you're doing for us. We love you. Amen. All right, so we're going to look into Scripture together today. I want, to, I want to go backwards before we go forward, okay? So last week and the week before, let's talk about those things a little bit because I think maybe we tend to forget, right? So last week we talked about the idea that God redeems us, and when He redeems us, it's like He uncrushes the can in our life. Like our life is really vulnerable and at risk, and, we, and life sometimes just kind of slams down on us and crushes the can of our life, so to speak, right? And when when Jesus comes in and brings redemption, it's like he uncrushes the can in our life. It's an amazing gift, and he doesn't care how messed up we are, it doesn't matter how bad the can is, doesn't matter how much we leak, he restores us through redemption. And so it's really a good gift. And I told you last week that I was going to take all my prayer times in this next week and I'm going to try and make them gratitude oriented prayers. I'm going to skip asking God for stuff, and I'm just going to do gratitude-oriented prayers. Did anybody try that this week? Yeah. How, how'd that go? It's hard, right? It's hard because we are somehow locked into, I got to ask God for stuff. And there are certain things that I'm really passionate and wound up about, and I want to ask God for them. And I tried all week long just to go, God, my prayers are just going to be about Thanksgiving, which is interesting because all it does is lead you toward faith. To live your life, uh, your prayer life, solely on prayers of thanksgiving means you have to trust God to know what you need already, and you have to trust him to be good enough to say yes to those needs, even if you're not asking for it, and you just keep expressing prayers of gratitude to him. It's really an amazing walk of faith, and it's hard to do, but it's, it's... fruitful and it's it's faith producing in our lives. So that's been a good journey for me this week. If you haven't stepped into that yet, maybe step into that this next week. Prayers of gratitude. All right. Let's see. So um, that was last week. The week before that, uh, we talked about 41 word stories. And I've been telling you about Paul's 41 word story that he gives to us in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's Paul's story. Now, that was the New American Standard that I just gave to you because that's how I memorized it years ago. I don't know if that was 41 words or not, but in the New International Version, it's 41 words. But the 41 doesn't really matter a ton, It's just can you get your story of faith wrapped up in such a small package that if you only had a minute to tell somebody, you could tell them your story of faith. And some of you have been sending me your story or you've been posting them on Facebook or on the table here at church and things, and they've been remarkable. Your stories are remarkable. Sometimes people tell me, oh, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really have a very good story. I have not seen yet one unremarkable story of faith. Every story of faith in Jesus is a remarkable story of faith. And if you haven't written your story out yet, I encourage you to do so. People are sending them in to us still or I'm finding them on Facebook. So I want to read a couple more of these today. I'm not going to read you any stories of 41 words next week. So this will be my last journey with this, I think. But here's here's a couple. One person wrote, "I was good. I was a good kid, but grew up thinking I was never quite good enough." I was right. Jesus said there is only one who is good. The best thing I ever did was to put my faith in him. It's a good story. Or this one. I wasn't raised in church. I sought out friends who were. Jesus and I collided when I was in boot camp. Though I didn't follow right away, he still pursued me faithfully. I know Jesus is my redeemer not my religion. It's a great story. What's your story? What's your 41-word story of faith? If you haven't written it down yet, try writing it down. Try and, you know, walk with God through that journey that you've taken to end up with Jesus by faith and see what he writes down through you. See if you can talk to somebody else. So I told you a couple weeks ago, my story of faith, my 41-word story of faith begins with this. I grew up in church, but I didn't get it. I grew up hearing the stories, hearing Bible stories, didn't even know they really came from the Bible. I'm just hearing stories and going to Sunday school and doing the thing. I grew up in church, but I didn't get it. And I bet that's the story of a lot of us. A lot of people grew up in church and you heard all this stuff, but it never really like landed on you. It never really opened up where you said, oh, I get it. Or some of you have come toward Jesus later in your life, some in college or as an adult, or something. You've come toward faith in Christ, or maybe you come to faith in Christ, but you come to the Bible and you go, "Yeah, I don't really get it." Or you come to church, maybe, and and you go, "I don't really get that. What's that about?" I don't get it. And if you ever say that about church or about the Bible or about who God is or who Jesus is, you are not the first one. A lot of people in the world, they look at Scripture and they go, what? I don't get it. I mean, why are there two parts of the Bible? Why isn't there just one big happy book, right? Why does it have to be an Old Testament and New Testament? Why is there law and grace? Why does God seem to behave differently in the Old Testament than he seems to behave in the New Testament? Why does all that stuff happen? And you can probably go on with hundreds of questions where you go, I don't get it. And it's interesting. You are not the first one to do that. We are not the first generation of people uh, who have not quite gotten it either, if that's who you are. When the Apostle Paul was commissioned by Jesus to go out and bring the good news of Jesus to the Roman Empire, one of the places that he traveled was in what is now central Turkey. It's an area called Galatia. And he went into that region and he started several churches. He was preaching the gospel. People were coming to faith in Jesus. And he started several churches around the region of Galatia. And then after a while, he left And he left these churches, and they were young. They were kind of new in the faith, and they didn't get everything yet. And so when he left, some other teachers, false teachers, came in. They're like, oh, here's our chance. And Paul's message to the Galatians when he started those churches was, look, you are redeemed. You were rescued by God from sin, from being separated from God. You were rescued by God, by grace, through faith in Jesus alone. Nothing else. Faith. No additives. Faith. Faith. Plus nothing, he said. But these false teachers came in. They said, no, yeah. You know, Paul's a pretty bright guy and stuff, but he kind of missed this piece of it. Yeah, it's faith in Jesus. Yes, that's right. But it's faith in Jesus plus the law. And there's all this law in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. It's all back there. And you got to do that stuff too. And so the Galatians were a little confused. And some of them started saying, well, I guess we better follow the law and Jesus and we'll try. But they were terrible at it. Just like every generation of law keepers and rule followers has been since the beginning of time. I mean, look at yourself. You are horrible rule keepers. Sorry, I didn't mean to be rude or anything. I'm just assuming that you're pretty much like me, right? We don't even keep the laws of our own state. Anybody ever do a California stop? That is not in the code. Right? We, break, we, go, we go faster than the speed limit. We do all kinds of things. We don't really follow the whole law. And we try. We're, we're like good people. We do pretty good. We do alright. And then if you want to add the Old Testament law to that, it's like, oh, we fail miserably. Nobody keeps the law. And here's these teachers telling the Galatians, you gotta keep the law and you gotta do it right. No messing up. Oh, and follow Jesus. That's alright too. And Paul gets wind of this and he writes this letter back to the Galatian churches. He goes, hey, Somebody's messing with you guys, and I want to get this corrected. He sends this letter that we call the book of Galatians. He sends it back to those people, and he goes, can I just explain the parts that you're not getting? Can I explain law and grace and what that looks like? And so we're spending our summer walking through this letter, and there's some complicated parts of it. There's a lot of stuff that refers back to the Old Testament, and some of us get to that part, and we go, oh, I don't get that. Well, today, I want to read a passage for you and then help you get to the place where you go, oh, I'm beginning to understand what that background stuff is like, what that law stuff in the Old Testament is like. All right, so if you have your Bible, why don't you open up to Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to read a passage for you. If you don't have a Bible there with you, there's one on the chair near you. You can reach over and grab that and uh, follow along with us. Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to read kind of a long passage, so hang with me. There's a lot of stuff in there, and uh, we're not going to get into all of it, but the, uh, we're going to try and focus on the thing that, that matters most, I think. So here's what Paul says, Galatians 3, verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, or we, w- we could say a will, no one at- can add to a human covenant that has been duly established So it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, Christ. And what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace Gave it to Abraham through a promise. Let's just stop for a moment. There is a covenant that God made with Abraham. And through Abraham, God made to his people. And it's a covenant based on relationship. And it's a relationship based on promise. God made a promise to Abraham. We're going to read a little bit of it later. But he made a promise. And he keeps it. In Jesus. Verse 19. Now, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. That's all in kind of parentheses there. And then go on. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. It's about faith plus nothing. It's faith, no additives. And then you come to the heart of the story. Verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. All right, let's stop there. There's a lot of stuff in there. Yes? Yes? We could talk for hours and hours about the stuff that's in there, and, and some of it's really complicated if it's, and I'm not going to get to all of it, and so if you get confused and you got questions afterwards, see Steve Wright. He'll help you out, okay? So, but let me get to the part that I can get to and, and kind of walk this through. The essence of this comes in verse 23 through 25, and it says, before faith came, we were in custody. We were in protective custody. It's sort of like what happens when someone's being protected by the FBI or by a police department or something. They put them in protective custody for their benefit. And Paul says the law was given to keep you in custody for a while and for a purpose. And the purpose was to bring you to faith in Christ. It was never to be de- designed to be faith plus law. It was designed to be law points you to Jesus and you were kept in custody the world was kept in custody by means of the law now let me just kind of describe what that means we uh we in our culture we have a a thing called a guardian you know someone can be an official legal guardian of a child I never got that one as a kid we would fill out you know like permission forms for school field trips and things like parent or guardian could sign that it's like what's a guardian mom I don't get the guardian thing and she's like, well, you wouldn't understand it because I'm your mom. You know, I'm, I'm your guardian, but I'm your mom. So you don't have to worry about the guardian part. Well, if you're in a foster child relationship or, or maybe moving toward adoption or something, you have someone who's an adult who is a guardian legally over you. They have you in their protective custody. They're caring for you. They're sheltering you from things. They're your guardian. In our our world, in that kind of context, a guardian is typically someone who brings protection to a child. But in that world, a guardian went beyond just protection and it went to teaching. A guardian was a tutor. A guardian was a teacher or a school teacher for a child. In fact, the word that Paul uses when he writes this, he says, hey, the the law is a guardian for you. The word that he uses is the the Greek word paedagogos. You don't have to remember that. I'm not even sure that's how it's pronounced. Might be, never mind. It's the word from which we get the word pedagogue. Anybody know the word pedagogue? Yeah, a couple of it. Pedagogue is a teacher. You know, it's just like a big, fancy, uh, expensive word for teacher. And so what he's saying is the law was your teacher or your tutor to bring you to Christ. That's the reason God gave the law, to lead people to the Messiah, to Jesus. So it was our tutor. My daughter, uh, who is getting married next Saturday, which is why I will not be asking you for your forty-one word story because I'll be walking her down the aisle next Saturday evening. Yeah, I know it's pretty cool, right? So anyway, my daughter, she just graduated college last year. She's really, really smart. She got a she got a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics. I'm saying. I don't, know. I don't know what that means. I can't even spell applied mathematics, but she's, you know, really good at it, really smart at it. So she's an expert in mathematics, but she's also a really skilled teacher at making things simple. She's amazing. And she's been able to earn a lot of income. I mean, for the amount of hours she puts in, a lot of income being a tutor. She goes to people's housing. You know, they got like middle schoolers or high schoolers. They pay her a lot of money to be a tutor. I'm like, how do I get on that? She goes, you have to understand applied mathematics. (sighs) Okay, I'll keep doing what I'm doing then. It's all good. That's all right. So so she's a tutor. She teaches other children. And uh, one time when she was still in high school, she was taking calculus at Folsom High. And she had another of her classmates. So they were peers. She had her classmate come over to the house just to help her work on calculus, you know. And so my daughter's helping her, kind of coaching her along. And uh, the girl's not quite getting it. So Bethany's explaining all these calculus. Formulas, calculaic formula. I don't know how you say it. I'm telling you, I stick with the Bible. Okay. So anyway, she's explaining this stuff, and I'm in my study. She's out at the dining room table, and she's trying to explain all these formulas and principles and all that stuff. And finally, the girl's not getting it. So my daughter pulls out a pair of salt and pepper shakers, puts them on the table, explains calculus, and the girl goes, "Oh." I'm like, my daughter is a genius. She explains calculus through salt and pepper. So people get it. It's like, that's amazing. That's a tutor. That's what the law does to bring us to Christ. The law was never an end in itself. The law was never something that God said, do this and you will live. Because we all fail at it. If If the law was just designed so that you would do this and you would live, God was just setting you up. But that's never what it was for. It was designed to be a tutor, to lead us to faith in Christ. You probably know the name Aristotle. Aristotle is known as a philosopher, great philosopher. He has almost single-handedly shaped the thought of the Western world. You may not know that Aristotle in his days on earth was also a tutor. That's how he earned his money, earned his living. He was a tutor. In fact, he worked for the king of Macedonia. And the king of Macedonia's son, who had, who had Aristotle as a tutor, was Alexander, also named later Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's tutor was Aristotle. would like to find out if you use salt and pepper shakers. But he tutored Alexander, and Aristotle's Job description was to make the principles or the truth of life clear to Alexander. That's what a tutor does. You make the principles of life, you make the truth of life clear to your students. That's what the law was designed to do. You go back to the Old Testament, you come to the law, it was all designed to make the truth of life clear. And when it made it clear, you would find that it points you straight toward Jesus the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. It's our guardian until we come to Christ, and then it sets us free. Guardians don't keep their student forever. Tutors don't keep their student forever. If you keep your student forever, you're not doing a good job because they've got to graduate at some point. They've got to pass the test themselves at some point. The law just brings us to faith in Christ. Now, it does it in several ways. You go back to the Old Testament, there's five books, the first five books of the Bible are called officially the law. But actually, you can take all of the Old Testament scriptures and combine them together because all of them were sometimes called the law. And you can go through and you can say that the stuff in the Old Testament is designed to lead us to faith in Christ. And so when you're reading back through some of those things, you're reading through Joshua or 1 Kings or Judges or something, you can find in every one of those books of the Old Testament something that's pointing to Christ, But the law specifically is designed to teach us, to lead us to Jesus. It does it in several ways. One way is the law leads us to Jesus through its words. Now that's maybe pretty obvious, but let me read some of the words of the law. This is Leviticus 19, starting at verse 9. Listen to this. The writer, this is Moses, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Why did he say that? He said, I want you to leave. I don't want you to take everything. I don't want you to suck that field dry. I want you to leave some there for the poor and the foreigner, the alien, the immigrant. I want you to leave some for them. Why? Because God has a heart for them. He says, I am the Lord your God. Oh, and I'm pointing to the Messiah who's coming someday, and that's his heart too. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't deceive one another. Don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Don't defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. That expresses the heartbeat of the Messiah. Don't pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. It is my character to treat your neighbors this way. And if you treat your neighbors this way, it will steer you toward the Messiah. And when you find out that you have trouble treating your neighbors in this way, it will steer you toward your need for a Messiah. And he's coming. The law tutors us to Jesus all the way through with its words. Now, sometimes the words are just loving and encouraging and good like those words. Those are beautiful. But sometimes the words of the law steer us to Jesus like this. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. If you don't carry out every one of these rules, every one of these laws, every one of these directives, you are under a curse. That's not good. That's not happy talk. But all of that is designed to make us go, oh, if I'm under a curse, I'm going to need someone to rescue me because I can't rescue myself from the curse. Oh, that's what the Messiah is about. And so the law was not designed to be law plus Messiah. It was law leading to the Messiah. And so the law leads us to Jesus through its, wor- through its words, and those are the words of God. They're, they're statements that say God communicates with his people through his law. You want to know the character of God? You want to know what God is like? Read his law. His holiness, his love, his justice. It's all in the law. It's all back to those Old Testament scriptures, and they all point forward to Jesus. So when you're reading back there, ask the question while you're reading, Where is Jesus in all this? How is God steering me to the Messiah in all this? The law leads us to Jesus through its words. Now the law leads us to Jesus also through some other things like its covenants. You know what a covenant is? Anybody ever made a covenant? Let's say let me ask that. Anybody ever here ever made a covenant? Yeah, about a dozen of you. How many of you are married? How do you look at that thing? That's a covenant. Some people say, hey, it's a contract. Yeah, but it's really more than that. A contract is just two legal parties who go, yeah, I agree. Let's do it. Okay. Here's the rules. If you do it, here's if you don't do it, you know, that's kind of a contract. But a covenant says, my heart is in this. When God says he makes covenants with people, he's saying, my heart is in this. Yes, it's binding. Yes, it's an agreement. But my heart is in this. It's a relational tool my covenant with my wife keeps us coming back together and saying we, we not only love each other, but we're committed to each other through this covenant. It's relational. In the Old Testament scriptures, in the law, there are seven covenants that God makes with people, sometimes with the nation of Israel specifically, sometimes with humanity as a whole. And he makes, this covenants, covenant, he makes these covenants. He sets up a relational agreement with us or with them. And every one of those covenants has an element that points toward Jesus. First covenant God made was with Adam in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned and they walked away from God, they said, you know, we'll be our own God. Thank you very much. God came in and brought judgment there. And he brought judgment to the serpent who tempted them. And he referred to the seed of Adam, to to the offspring of Adam coming down the road. He referred to the Messiah and he said, he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. If you are ever in a fight, would you rather crush the head or strike the heel? Crush the head, man. Take him all the way out. If you're going to win, that's how it goes. He says the Messiah is going to crush the serpent's head. The the, the serpent will strike his heel. It's the first reference to the Messiah. The first covenant with Adam points forward to the Messiah. The covenant with Abraham points forward to the Messiah covenant with moses points forward to the messiah i skipped over the covenant of noah that points forward to the messiah the palestinian land covenant points forward to the messiah the davidic david covenant points to the messiah the new covenant in jeremiah 31 points forward to the messiah all those covenants those relational agreements between god and his people they all point forward to jesus He's talking a lot about Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. And so just to reference that, Genesis chapter 12 is the beginning of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth are now blessed through, through the Messiah, Jesus. The covenants point to Jesus. The words of the law point to Jesus. The covenants point to Jesus. The law points to Jesus in the, in the, in the worship structures of the law. They had a tabernacle there. When God was given the law to Moses, God said to Moses, hey, I want you, you guys are going to be wandering around the desert for a while. You're not going to have a permanent home for a long time. I want you to set up a a mobile worship center. They called it a tabernacle. It was a big tent. He said, I want you to set it up as a worship center because I want you to be a worshiping kind of people. And it was filled with furnishings and all the furniture in the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. When you walked in the front door of of the tabernacle, there was a room. In that front room, there was a light stand which points to the idea that Jesus was the light of the world. There was bread on the table, which points to the idea that Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. There was an altar of incense, which represented prayer. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is our intercessor before the Father, pleading with him on our behalf day and night. When you go beyond the first room of the tabernacle, you go behind a curtain, which, by the way, was torn from top to bottom on the day that Jesus was crucified. You go in to the back room, it's called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. The high priest is the only one who ever got to go in that room and he only got to go in once a year and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and that one piece of furniture in the holy room, the holiest room, was the Ark of the Covenant and the priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and put it on the seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant and it would cover the sins of Israel for another year. But every year, every year, every year they had to do that because the blood of animals was never enough. And so eventually Jesus Christ, the great high priest, came and he sacrificed his own life, gave his own blood, carried that to the judgment seat of God and said, I've paid the price for anyone who will trust me forever. Forever. But everything that goes on in that tabernacle points forward to Jesus. There were festivals in the Old Testament in the law. Seven great festivals given in the first five books of the Bible. One of those festivals is called Passover. Passover is designed specifically to point to Jesus. Remember the story when Israel was captured in the land of Egypt and they were slaves there for 400 years? They couldn't get out, they couldn't get out. Finally, God came along and sent Moses, and he said, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And when he says, no, I won't, I'm going to send plagues, and I'm going to kind of loosen his grip a little bit, and then you're going to go out. And the last of 10 plagues was this one called Passover, and God was going to take the life of the firstborn child of everybody who lived in Egypt. Well, the Israelites lived in Egypt. How would they be spared? God gave them instructions. He said, I want you each to take a lamb, each family take a lamb. Slaughter that lamb. I want you to share a meal together of that lamb. And then I want you to take the blood of the lamb and I want you to put it on this doorpost of your house and this doorpost of your house and on the top crossbar of the door of your house. And when my avenger comes through Egypt, he will see the blood on your door in the shape of a cross and he will pass over you. And even the festivals that are markers of celebration between God and his people were pointing to Jesus. When you read the Old Testament law, read it like that. There'll be still some stuff you don't get, I'm sure. But read it with this question. How does this steer me to Jesus? What is in this Chapter, this paragraph, this story that is designed to lead me to faith in Jesus because all of it's designed that way. And if you read it with that question, I believe God will say, here's the answer. It's my son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. And thank you for what you've done for us through the Bible, Lord, through this book and through the law that's back at the beginning of it. I'm constantly amazed how the stuff you put at the beginning points to what you put at the end. Written over a thousand years, but still pointing to Jesus. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for what you're doing in us. Thank you for those among us who are believing you and trusting you. Thank you for your son. Amen.